And welcome to episode 1194 of Effectively Wild, the Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I realize now I don't even think about these words when I say them. They just come out. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's been programmed. This is uh, another, our penultimate team season preview episode. We will be talking about the Mariners with Meg Rowley and the Rockies with Jesse Spector. Before we do that, Ben would like to share some things that I might respond to. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean about the rote introduction. Every now and then I'll actually think about what I'm saying as I'm saying it, and I'll screw myself up. It'll be like a, a wily coyote looking down and suddenly falling. And that's when we redo the intro, and you never hear that. But yeah, I'm, uh, I'm over here just saving America's pastime today. I feel like I have as strong a claim to that as Congress does. Ah, I forgot to introduce us. You're oh, Ben Lindbergh you? of the Ringer. Yeah, that's right. Right, Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Oh no, just in yeah. case anyone's new to this. People know. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, so we talked uh, a few days ago about the minor league payroll bill, the bill that has now been passed and has codified essentially the underpayment of minor leaguers. So it's a little different from what we thought it was in the sense that minor leaguers are not making less than minimum wage technically. They are making minimum wage or at least minimum wage, but the problem is that they are not being paid for overtime hours and they pretty much all work overtime hours. They are seasonal workers now by law or at least by federal law and this means that they will continue to be underpaid for the foreseeable future, unfortunately, and There's still a lawsuit, a class action. This doesn't make that go away, but it does make it harder to win just because the thing that they are suing over is now legal. So one of the pieces of leverage that the players had was the prospect of future payments, and now that's essentially gone, so it's only back payments anyway. We're now down to a point where basically to ever hope to get paid, the minor leaguers may have to unionize, and that's not going to be an overnight process at all. We are hoping and planning to talk to someone who is actually directly affected by this sometime soon, but in a way, I feel a little more like I'm affected by it than I did a few days ago because it turns out there is an almost accidental casualty to this bill which is the independent leagues. The Sonoma Stompers may be endangered, may be extinct as a result of this bill, which is something that I hadn't considered, but J.J. Cooper of Baseball America wrote it up the other day, and the problem is for low-level independent leagues like the Pacific Association, where Sam and I ran a team and wrote a book, the players there often usually do not make minimum wage, and that's unfortunate, of course, but it's a different situation from the affiliated minors where you have rich teams that are essentially electing not to pay minor leaguers because no one's making them. In the lower-level independent leagues, no one's really making any money for the most part, and players are just playing for the love of it, for the hope, the remote hope of getting seen and being able to move up. And it's looking right now like unless there's some sort of last-ditch effort to save some of these leagues, they might just go out of existence because just from having to pay the players minimum wage, that's going to be a lot more than the budget that they had accounted for. And even that was already a stretch. So now I I almost feel I, I, I felt empathy for players before, But now there's a part of me that is almost being directly affected by this because of my fondness for those leagues. So I am even more upset about this now. Right. This time it's personal. Yeah, exactly. Whatever you want to say. It turns out out writing good law is complicated because there are just so many very... 
look, I don't know nearly enough about, you know, law to have this conversation and with any sort of insight. I hadn't even hadn't crossed my radar that the independent leagues were going to be threatened. But the independent leagues are, I, I mean, I don't know. Do you consider them necessary? I would consider them. Well, forget it. None of this is necessary if you want to take that angle. Yes. But I don't think that, I guess if you're threatening the independent leagues, Major League Baseball would have some sort of vested interest in keeping them alive because yeah. it is, in a sense, some sort of feeder system, even if when you're talking about like the Sonoma Stompers, it's an mm-hmm. awfully low level. But Yeah, brings pro ball to towns that wouldn't otherwise have pro ball. So in some way, indirectly, probably increases interest in the sport and by extension, Major League Baseball. I think this is one of those stories, and we'll talk about this when we're not actively recording a podcast, but this is one of those things <laughs> where I feel like we, we're going to need to dedicate more than like 30 minutes to interviewing one person about like the maybe what's going to ultimately follow the team preview series that will have an end is a new series that talks about how the <laughs> lower levels of baseball are going to be crippled because now it is, as you said, now it is codified. So the, the mm-hmm. great difficulty, as you can imagine, is that there are these lawsuits and there are people who have openly complained. But if you if you get people who are uh, players who are affected, who are really passionate about it, well, it, those players, if they're still in baseball and trying to continue to play baseball, they have a reason not to speak up. They don't want to be troublemakers because yeah. it's already so... If you're a non-prospect, and I think a lot of players know when they're non-prospects, but you're still trying to hang on. Sometimes you get a shot. Maybe you just want to keep playing baseball. Already, teams look at you as fungible. So if, you, if you're a troublemaker in any way, you're just really easy to cut. And they can say for mm-hmm. cause by saying you're a non-prospect. We want to bring in this guy who runs harder, faster, or throws right. harder. So it's difficult to get people, I guess, on the record beyond maybe a, a tweet. But uh, I don't know. Maybe now that it's law, there are the, clearly there's already lawsuits that have been put forward. There are people fighting this fight, and I don't know. Maybe more people are going to be willing to join it. Yeah. Well, obviously, MLB spent millions of dollars lobbying for this provision in this bill that they could have spent potentially paying minor leaguers, but they are making their money back by spending on lobbying instead because, hey, now they don't have to pay minor leaguers. So it's this Orwellianly named Save America's Pastime Act, which is not what the act is doing but i guess you could say that if the independent leagues couldn't afford to pay their players minimum wage then maybe they shouldn't exist maybe it's just not a viable business or economic model and i guess that's a fair argument except that it's not as if these players can go somewhere else and play for more money most likely they will have the option now to stop playing baseball or stop playing pro baseball at least and i mean maybe long term career wise that will benefit them in some way because they weren't going to make the majors anyway but this is what they wanted to do and what made them happy and the route to doing that may be about to be cut off so I think that is lamentable on some level even aside from the fact that I wrote a book about one of these leagues so we'll see how all this develops and it is a story that we're following and not particularly enjoying following but it's important if you had to guess A. this never changes B, this changes because of something like minor leaguers unionizing, or C, this changes because some major league owner is just like, you know what, I'm just going to do it. 
and F off everyone else. And we're going <laughs> to see if this is good for our system. What do you think? Changes it or doesn't? I would bet that it changes someday, but I just can't see any immediate timeline where it would. And I can't see unless you had some super billionaire owner comes in who cares nothing about profit and cares only about the moral welfare of his players. And I don't know that MLB owners tend to be drawn from a pool of people like that. I don't know. I don't really see it happening. And and a union is not something that can happen quickly. And I don't think their pay has improved at all in the last several decades once you adjust for inflation. So nothing seems to be changing thus far. We were talking the other day about how you could uh, run a team and keep your job, but kind of send the team into the toilet. And this is another, yeah. and the, one of the ideas that came up is to have like the, the all morality team, like the likability uh-huh. team, and just try to be on the right side of history with everything. And that team, that executive would be like, yeah, we're just going to pour $5 million into the system and just make right. everyone comfortable. And we'll take it out of the major league payroll or whatever. That's uh, that's another thing that that guy could do. Although maybe he yeah. loses his job very quickly. <laughs> right. So we are doing a team preview podcast today, our second to last. couple more things before we get to that. Have you seen Ryan Zimmerman's statistics this spring training? Uh, no, because I think the only numbers I've seen this spring training are Mike Trout, and Uh Domingo Santana. Yes. Well, Ryan Zimmerman's numbers are interesting in a different way. So in one way, he's hitting 500 with a 1,000 slugging percentage and a 1,500 OPS. So that's notable. The other way it's notable is that he has done that in two at-bats thus far this spring. And those two at-bats came in February, very early in spring training. And it is evidently not because he's hurt, unless the Nationals and Zimmerman are very adeptly concealing some sort of injury, which doesn't seem to be the case. Our Washington Nationals preview guest, Chelsea Janes, wrote about this in the Washington Post. And apparently, this is just a plan not to play games because Zimmerman and the team doesn't feel it would benefit him or feels it would benefit him more not to play in games now and to save his strength. And so... He's been playing like on the backfields in minor league games, just sort of hitting, not running, not playing the field, has been doing very light running and fielding. So he just hasn't really seen much major league quality pitching here. The idea is that he's getting older. He's had issues with his lower body, plantar fasciitis. And so the idea is keep him off his feet as long as possible. Let him save his strength and use that energy in the regular season. And I wonder whether this is something that will start a trend because spring training is really long. If you hadn't noticed, it's still going. It started several weeks ago and Zimmerman feels that he doesn't need it or doesn't need what the typical player does and so wonder whether this will catch on because if one team said hey you can show up later that might make them more appealing at least to players and possibly it would help them also possibly it would hurt them and if Zimmerman starts out in a slump then I'm sure he will hear from columnists and fans and local radio hosts that it's because he didn't train hard enough in spring training. All these major league regulars are going to go get some time in minor league games, and then all the minor leaguers are going to need to be able to play in the major league games. So then major league spring training is going to be minor league spring training and vice versa. <laughs> this yeah. is like clearly, I think players almost unanimously agree spring training is stupid and far too long. It's probably far too long by the exact amount of weeks that it is from the beginning <laughs> to the end. 
I don't know, you need some sort of spring training, but you could probably cut it in half. And I think we talked about this a while ago, probably multiple times. But now more than ever, there's hashtag there is no offseason. Players are showing up to mm-hmm. spring training ready to go. And I mean, you know, Matt Kemp showed up to spring training down 40 pounds, right? That's not going to last forever. He has, he needs to get going. He needs to get <laughs> started with the season before that weight comes back. Because, you know, that's what that's what bodies do. They, uh, <laughs> they find their level, if you will. Yeah. So if players are already spending the offseason getting ready and you have all this Instagram footage of players who are just training in the dark, whether that's in the morning or in the evening or both, that if they're doing their spring training basically in December and January, why do we have spring training in February and March? So it's something that I feel like it it should be shrunk. I think a lot of players think it should be shrunk. I don't know what kind of spring training revenue there is because that's obviously the reason that Mm -hmm. towns probably and I guess teams have an interest in keeping spring training long for a lot of these towns this is a a big source of income you know Scottsdale probably doesn't want a shorter spring training but if the players do feels like they should be in charge here and Mm -hmm. then uh, I don't know if that you just start spring training later because I guess you can't really start the season earlier realistically yeah and so in this story that chelsea wrote zimmerman says that no one resents this sort of special routine he's on you could imagine it being something that might anger people if it was looked at as special treatment or someone not working hard enough and at least from zimmerman's perspective that's not the case and also he says no one else really seems to want to do what he's doing that they all seem quite content to play in major league games and hit major league pitching so I don't know that it's going to spread like wildfire, but maybe one guy does this, it becomes more acceptable for the next guy to say, well, worked out okay for him. So maybe we will start to see more of this. Anyway, Ryan Zimmerman, potential spring training trailblazer. This is what we we need Mike Trout to do this so that, and then someone needs to record statistics for the games that he does play in the yeah. minor league games. So then we yeah. can start to answer exactly. the hypotheticals. This does say actually that he's hitting like 800 in the minor league games, but <laughs> <laughs> no, no exact stats. Stats, but yeah, evidently he's uh, he's owning the minor league camp. <laughs> so one last thing you mentioned, Matt Kemp, who evidently is going to be a Dodger for real and might even be hitting in the middle of the lineup on opening day which is not something I think any of us expected a month ago, two months ago, before spring training started. So I am just marveling not only at that, but also at Aaron Judge hitting leadoff in Friday's Yankees spring training game. So things I did not expect to see, Aaron Judge hitting leadoff and Matt Kemp hitting, period. And he is hitting. He's doing quite well, and he's not hurt at the moment, and there isn't really a better option on that roster right now. So if he can play for a few weeks and maybe stay healthy, drive up his value until the Dodgers have a better option available, I guess it makes sense. It's just not something any of us really envisioned making sense. Not at any point <laughs> all offseason did I think, look, I get Aaron Judge, leadoff, whatever. <laughs> Yankees don't have a classic leadoff man. I get it. It's 2018. Everyone's progressive. Sure. Matt Kemp. And the Dodgers, they have Andrew Tolls, they have Jock Peterson, Enrique Hernandez. They have options, maybe none of them great. But I look, I haven't watched Matt Kemp this spring. The Dodgers have. I have just, so I'm in charge of the Fangraphs depth charts, which means yeah. I'm in charge of the Dodgers depth chart. And it's been so difficult because at no point, even now, I still don't really, I don't want to believe them because <laughs> Matt Kemp has not been a good baseball player for a long time. He's been able to hit fine. He's been a league average hitter three years in a row, and he's been terrible at everything else. And he's older now. And sure, he's down some weight, but I mean, the Dodgers know this. They're not dumb. So even now, I can't read one of these articles about Kemp without thinking the team is just trying to boost him 
so mm-hmm. that they can find a taker to take some of his contract. Yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, it's it's almost to the season now, and he's still there. So maybe this really is going to... Look, he's not he's not the worst player ever, and if he's yeah, actually bad, he then the first lefties, one will get replaced. Right, and I don't know. Maybe the Dodgers can shift their outfield in such a way that Matt Kemp isn't quite as terrible as he's been before. I don't know that there's any shift that makes Matt Kemp a passable outfielder at this point, but maybe you could ameliorate his terribleness somewhat yeah and uh, i mean look if he can move around that if, if he's if he's going to regain the 40 pounds he lost that's going to take time it's not going to come immediately <laughs> so you know maybe he'll get slower and slower and like last season he did start well he hit the crap out of the ball for the braves yeah. the first couple of months and then he uh they got hurt, slowed down, all that stuff. Maybe the Dodgers think that he can just have a hot start. They'd probably love for him to have a hot start because then they're no worse off. They buy time until Justin Turner comes back, and then maybe they can find some way to move Kemp later. So it's not like this is going to cripple them. Even if Kemp does play, the Dodgers wouldn't do something like that, I don't think. But even now, I'm like maybe 40% convinced he's actually going to be in the roster, despite literally every indication saying, yeah, Kemp is going to make it. <laughs> yeah. Will you believe it until the lineup is drawn in pen I'm and <laughs> the game begins? going to be looking for him to be scratched. <laughs> right. All right. And the last thing I wanted to mention, Bob Dutton tweeted this earlier. I was not familiar with this anecdote, but we talked on the Diamondbacks preview about how Zach Greinke wasn't throwing hard. I think he has since started to throw hard again, which is something that he does seemingly every spring. He was throwing like mid 80s and now I guess he's up to low 90s again. So looks like he's fine. But evidently, One year when he was with the Royals, and I did not know this story, but he threw in one spring training game, he just intentionally threw nothing but 85-mile-per-hour fastballs, and he was (laughs) excited to do this because... Guy Hansen, who was the Royals pitching coach at the time, had told him and they'd gotten into a disagreement because Hansen argued that location was more important than velocity. And so Granke set out to prove him wrong by intentionally throwing 85 mile per hour fastballs <laughs> that were well located, but basically BP fastballs and they were facing the Brewers. And Dutton says he got pounded, and Greinke's first words after the start were, I guess velocity matters. (laughs) (laughs) So Protect him. (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, one reason to disregard spring training stats or place less weight on them. You never know when players just intentionally tanking a game to make a point to his pitching coach. So eh, that's probably something only Zach Greinke does, but that's why we treasure him. I feel like having Joey Votto around causes Zach Greinke to be less appreciated than he should be. (laughs) I think that, I don't know, maybe we've kind of gotten used to it or maybe he's just a little too weird or something for public consumption, but I I don't know. Zach Greinke feels like he does not get the attention that he uh, he warrants anymore because he's still great mm-hmm. maybe it's because he's on the diamondbacks and no longer like a higher profile team but i appreciate zach Greinke while he's around because there's 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 only one of them mm-hmm. there's literally only one person like zach Greinke <laughs> in the world that's right and in other news miguel cabrera does not know any of his teammates names and calls everyone bro <laughs> <laughs> which also came out this week which uh i guess it would be endearing i guess it's kind of endearing it would be even more endearing if this were I don't know, Adrian Beltre or someone, but I guess the fact that it's not, Adrian Beltre gets a lot of credit for being a team leader and a clubhouse guy. 
Miguel Cabrera does not really get that kind of credit. And I guess maybe you do have to actually learn your teammates' names in order to be a good clubhouse guy. That seems kind of like the bare minimum. It's funny that he calls everyone bro and never learns their names. But from a team unity standpoint, I don't know that that's necessarily the best thing. Well, you know, four or five years ago, maybe it would have been worse. But at this point, why does he want to get invested in his fellow Tigers? <laughs> sure. You know? right. It's like, if anything, this is this helps protect him because now he doesn't know how to research how bad they are. <laughs> that's true. He, he won't get attached. All right. <laughs> so let's move on to the Mariners preview. And we should note that after we spoke to Meg, we learned, she learned, we all learned that David Phelps will miss the season. We'll have Tommy John surgery. So... Anything she said that sounded sort of demoralizing about the Mariners pitching staff, just adjust it so that it's slightly more demoralizing than it was when she said it. So we will be back in just a moment with Meg. Okay, so as we begin to wind down this undying, never-ending series of team preview episodes, it's time to talk about a team that is, unsurprisingly, stuck kind of in the middle. That's the Seattle Mariners. All of the teams that we're talking about at this point in the series are stuck in the middle. The Mariners are one of them, and to talk about the Mariners, we are joined by Fangraph's own Meg Rowley. Hello. Hello. Are the Mariners good? Or I should say, are, <laughs> are the Mariners in any way distinguished from, for this season, the Athletics, the Rangers, and the Angels? Well, they have a James Paxton. They don't have a Shoya Tani. I sucks imagine now, we'll by talk. The way. Yeah, I guess he's just bad. Yeah, Can you imagine what Mariners Twitter would have been like if he had been doing this as a Mariner? Good, good gravy. No, I mean they're older than some of those teams, which is disconcerting if you're hoping for them to do fun and unexpected things. They don't have a lot of great pitching, which is sort of you know, true of a lot of these guys who are lumped in the middle. Yeah. there's <laughs> There are more of them who we know from last year than this time last year. There's been a lot less uh, movement that's on true. the roster. So I don't know if that's a good thing, but yeah. it's a thing. I think that the, the main sort of thing that they have done is what they haven't done this offseason, which is that going into – uh, this year, it was expected that they needed to address some of their woes at starting pitching because they used a shocking number of pitchers last year and had very poor pitching health, some of which, you know, we might expect to be fluky, but some of which is what happens when you get guys who are a little bit older and you're hoping for maybe a, a you know, return to form. And with the exception of Juan Nicasio, they really didn't do anything on the pitching side in terms of major additions. So they're sort of rolling with it and hoping that it's okay, which has been scary for Mariners fans watching spring training who have seen at different times Felix and Erasmo Ramirez and Marco Gonzalez get hurt. <laughs> so it's going great so far. <laughs> yeah, I guess Jerry's just too occupied with podcasting to acquire starting pitchers this offseason. He made a move. He was... made a move today. Yeah, that's true. I guess we can't play the, the Michael Bauman song. Because probably we're not legally allowed to do that. But yeah, Jerry did do something today. What did he do, Jeff? Tell Dario us what he Alvarez. Did. Ooh, Jared Boto claimed Dario Alvarez, who three years ago, I think, 
I heard from a hitter was the hardest pitcher he'd ever faced in a major league game. And uh, and now he is bad. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was what forty pitchers I think they used last season. That sounds right. Yeah, that's right. That's a lot of pitchers <laughs> to it, use. It tied a it tied a record that the Rangers had previously set, which is right. You know, in terms of health, probably not company that you want to find yourself in. Yeah. So you know, it's likely that we will see more of Ariel Miranda and Rob Whalen and Andrew Moore in a big league uniform and for a team that has a rapidly closing if not closed window i feel like every time i've come on to do this preview podcast with you guys we've been talking about how this is the last year the mariners have and they're in their rapidly closing window of contention but i think we might mean it more uh this year than we maybe have in prior years turns out none of the years was actually one of those years no. <laughs> the, the windows never open maybe i don't know yeah. well i was just reading the lookout landing staff post about hopes and dreams for the 2018 season seems like there's a lot of bitterness about the angels multiple staffers on that post <laughs> just want to beat the angels that seems to be their their sole goal i guess it's an achievable goal or more achievable than making the playoffs for the first time in decades but is that all otani related is that just being spurned by him and i guess from a fan perspective i know you're probably a little less of a pure fan than you were at one time but what was that roller coaster like of looking like otani was going to be a mariner and then having that pulled away well if i can tell a, a, a small personal story i actually didn't see that signing happen in real time because i was talking to david appleman about joining fangraph so it was a really <laughs> intense uh, couple of minutes for me <laughs> because i had been offered a, a, a dream job and was very excited and then i got off the phone and realized that uh, otani was going to a division rival of yes a, a team that i still uh, still root for you know, it's a bummer. And I think it's very clear that there wasn't much in the way of available budget to do anything else. And so they were really banking on on Otani being um, their guy, or at least hoping. And I think that, you know, they, they do seem to have gotten very, very close, uh, but were sort of ultimately outdone by the Angels, as we know. So I don't know if it's all Otani. I think that there's been sort of a lingering and persistent anti-angel feeling among the Mariners fan base for quite a while because, you know, it's hard to really hate the A's because they're in bad shape a lot of the time and don't have money. And the Rangers, I don't know, have their own sad stories to tell. It's hard to beat up on a team that, you know, lost a World Series in such sad fashion. So I think it's sort of settled on the Angels. And then we, you know, you can't really be mad at the Astros because it's like, it's like when people from Philadelphia are really mad at New York. It has a little bit of a sort of younger sibling feeling going on. So <laughs> I guess the Angels are the most obvious target for Mariner fan ire. I will say I've been pleased that it does not appear that the Mariners fan base has been enjoying Otani's struggles all too terribly much in spring. But we'll see how that changes as we get into games that actually matter. If there's a story right now in spring training, aside from all the pitchers have been hurt, but seem to be coming back, it's been the explosion of Dan Vogelbach. He's uh, he's had an unbelievable spring, one of the best offensive springs around, the kind of yeah. offensive spring that makes you say, I know it's spring training, but I'm looking at the Mariners' projected depth chart right now on fan graphs, and I'm in charge of it, so I know what's going on, and Ryan Healy... <laughs> is listed. He's the starter. He's supposed yep. to be the everyday first baseman, and he's projected for a wins above replacement of nothing point nothing. And his <laughs> backup is Dan Vogelbach, who is projected for nothing point something. Yeah. So 
I know I was reading Scott's service the other day, saying, yeah, Vogelbach's been great, he's done everything he needed to do, but we brought in Healy to be the everyday guy. How committed do you think the Mariners are to Ryan Healy moving forward as the everyday guy? He's had a slow spring because he's been hurt, and is Dan Vogelbach actually worth taking a look at? I mean, I think the knock on him has always been that, you know, there's this very, like, real power, which you can see just looking at the guy that he can thump, but it never really translated, that that raw natural power never translated into game power. And so in addition to the fact that he is sort of being discerning, but not to the point of maybe, you know, not of taking pitches that he shouldn't, it's also that we've seen the the power come around. And so, you know, it, it's sort of, what do you want out of your first baseman? Because I think that, Again, spring, like you said, spring is spring and we shouldn't overreact to it. But at least based on what we've seen now, you know, Ryan Healy's bat isn't anything that you really write home about. But he is a more defensively competent first baseman than Vogelback is, who's improved in that regard, but is still, you know, not especially sterling. And then you maybe have a guy who can hit the ball, which would be nice. So I think that their commitment is fairly low. I mean, they did actively trade for Healy in the offseason. They sent Emilio Pagan to the A's, but, you know, he's he's young and they didn't give up a whole heck of a lot. And Vogelback's young too. So I think that um, they'd be open to competition there. And he's done everything he needs to, to sort of demonstrate that he's capable, which is which is nice for him, nice for Mariners fans. So I imagine that You know, Healy's hand is getting better, but I'm not sure if he's going to be ready, ready for opening day. So I imagine that Vogelback will get his opportunity to sort of show what he's able to do. And then, you know, they'll have to sort out where he falls among the starters versus bench bats because they have a lot of uninspiring types sort of competing for utility spots, which he, you know, his, his utility is limited. He can either DH or play first, but he may have played his way into a job. Another guy who's hitting well this spring, Mike Zanino, who has been hitting well for quite a while now. And when we were doing the Twins preview the other day and I looked up where Byron Buxton ranked in second half war last year, I noticed that Mike Zanino was right there at number 20, number 20 in all the position players in baseball. And that doesn't even really factor in his framing. Another thing that he's good at, he had a 154 WRC plus in the second half of last season. So I know that you've seen bad Zanino, you've seen good Zanino. <laughs> Are you buying non-bad Zanino? Oh man, this is like Lucy with the football. Yep. I think I buy it now. I mean, to be clear, I've always been a Mike Zanino apologist, so I've maybe bought it for a lot longer than I should, <laughs> but the approach at the plate looks a lot better. He sort of retooled his swing, which he's, you know, he's been a tinkerer for a while because he was having such poor results, but, you know, he has this little leg kick now and his timing seems better and, you know, he's not just swinging at every single pitch that comes his way. And so I'm going to go into 2018 assuming that this is Mike Zanino, who will still strike out a fair amount, but is you know, has the play discipline now to not strike out to a disastrous degree, we are hoping, as fans of Mike Zanino, and can still thump the ball. And and you talked about the framing, which actually fell off a little bit uh, in the midst of his offensive struggles, which is maybe not surprising, but was another thing that kind of rounded back into form uh, in the, the latter half of last year. So this is the year of Mike Zanino, you guys. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> I won't be disappointed. It'll never happen. <laughs> Well, thankfully, if, if Mariners fans are going to be disappointed by something, it might not be Mike Zanino. It might be the legend that they decided on a whim to bring back because a starting outfielder strained an oblique. 
I thought it was a weird response to sign Itra because Ben Gamble was going to be out for like a month and a half, but here we are. It's happened. I don't know if this means what this means for Guillermo Heredia, but I guess the simple question is, is this going to be a good thing, a bad thing, or ultimately a meaningless thing that has like a moment or two in the middle before it's all over? Because you can see how this could get really tricky really fast. Yeah, I think I was very concerned when they brought him back, just sort of putting on my fan hat for a moment. You know, you can't be, you can't release Ichiro, but they might have to at some point, right? Because as you said, like Ben Gamble, it's not like Ben Gamble's going to be out until August or anything like that. Like he should be back in a couple of weeks. So I worry that they are setting themselves up to have to do something that really angers the fan base and sort of puts them on the wrong side of a franchise legend, which, you know, how much that matters to a front office, I think varies, but it isn't a great look when you're, you know, in the position to have to let go of someone who's meant so much to Seattle. I think they're saved a little bit by the fact that, you know, those guys have options left. And while Heredia has looked pretty good in spring so far, you know, he was he was injured last year. The year the year didn't go quite the way he wanted it to. I think a lot of that is probably attributable to his shoulder being kind of out of whack. But they do have some flexibility with where they put those guys. But yeah, I think you had talked about it being sort of like when they signed Edgar to be the hitting coach. And it's like, well, I guess we're doing this until Edgar decides he's done. Because what are you going to do? Fire Edgar Martinez. <laughs> and now they might might be replicating that, which seems seems dicey. But who knows? Maybe it'll be maybe it'll be fun. Maybe it'll be fun and fine, and he'll. Ichiro will play great, and they'll just store uh, Guillermo Heredia down in Tacoma for a little while and see what's what. But I think they're on a collision course for something kind of gnarly. Maybe the trick is that they actually are going to fire Edgar Martinez but replace him with Ichiro, and that's the best <laughs> that they could do. So then I don't know how they get rid of Ichiro, but, you know, it's kind of like you bring in a frog to take care of the bugs and you bring in yes. the dog to take care of the frogs. <laughs> We all end up dead at the end, but on the way there, we feel like we're solving problems. <laughs> I'd love to see Ichiro as a hitting coach who just tries to get everyone to hit like Ichiro. That would be very entertaining. <laughs> no, he makes them the power hitters. Yeah. That's right, yeah. He's Nelson the... Cruz unlocks previously unknown potential. <laughs> yeah, or he'll turn Nelson Cruz into like a 370 hitter or something, but no power. <laughs> so the Mariners have developed or did develop a justified reputation for being bad at player development or being unsuccessful at it for many years. No real reason to think that that would transfer from one regime to the next when a lot of the personnel turns over. But until you actually see the Mariners be good at that, I think there's still some wariness. So is the success of someone like Zunino, the apparent breakout perhaps of Vogelbach, some, some other developments maybe kind of doing away with that perception that the Mariners can't develop players or... Is that still around? What do they have to do to shed that label? And can they do it this season? It's an interesting way of thinking about it. I don't know that anyone's really looking at Zanino as being quite a, a result of the the new development philosophy. Although, I mean, maybe. He, he did get fixed by this regime. I think we won't really have a solid answer to that question until we start to see what uh, some of the guys who Jerry has drafted start to do. And I think that they're in for sort of a rough road there. I mean, Kyle Lewis is is seemingly really good when he's on the field, but he's not on the field a lot. You know, he had this horrifying knee injury, you know, not long after they drafted him and he's been sort of in and out of being scoped and prodded and having things cleaned up. And I, I just hate to think what the inside of his knee actually looks like right now. So they don't really, you know, we don't really know what 
what they're going to get there or how how successful he'll be at the major league level if he'll be at the major league level uh and then they've had a couple of drafts that have you know yielded guys that they like like sam carlson and evan white but they're kind of a ways off from the majors so i don't know if we know the answer to that yet and i wonder i wonder how definitive an answer we'll ever feel like we have because i don't say this to be an alarmist like he's on on the chopping block right now but you know, you do wonder with continued lack of success at the major league level, like how many more drafts is Jerry Depoto going to get? And will we, you know, see change in personnel uh, on that side in a couple of years? So I don't know. I think it's still an incomplete when it comes to comes to stuff like that. And you know, it must be if I'm not out here touting Mike Zanino as a reason <laughs> that this is a great development organization. I will say that, you know, the, the things that we hear from them in terms of organizational philosophy and approach seem to be much more in line with what you would expect from an organization that can actually produce major league players. So I, I think that I am optimistic that they're on the right track. And I just wonder, you know, if we're really going to see it um, based on sort of how far away some of these guys are and They've kind of cleaned out a lot of the holdovers from the Zorenzic era, so uh, it's it's all it's all Jerry's kids now. So I guess we'll have a, a better sense uh, in a couple of you know months or years, depending on which particular prospect you're talking about. Yeah, and I guess given the state of the farm system, it might take more than just an average player development program to make these guys good. I don't know. Just going by the baseball prospectus organizational rankings, which had the Mariners dead last this year and just had a screen cap of Janet from the good place wailing <laughs> as the blurb for the farm yeah. system. <laughs> Basically, it's, uh, it's not, not looking rich down there right now. Well, I think it was one of the only ones that when, when Eric ranked them they had like 14 prospects that he felt the need to actually rank. So <laughs> the cover doesn't bear, but it is it is uh, running out. So it will need replenishment soon, which is why, you know, when people say that they're eager to see the Mariners rebuild, I always caution fans to be careful what they wish for because this one might take a little while. <laughs> it's a cupboard with like two tins of baked beans and then just a bunch of artichoke hearts. That's a really mean way to describe Daniel Vogelback. He is not baked beans, Jeff. <laughs> He's the pork. Aww. So I've seen pretty often this offseason, uh, of course, in the in the Jerry DePoto propaganda, everything is great. But I've also seen a lot of references to the Mariners having a, a, a deep bullpen. I've seen that uh, repeatedly. And maybe that's just a way to divert attention from the not deep other half of the pitching staff, but you look at the bullpen, of course, there's talent at the top. Edwin Diaz is interesting. Juan Nicasio was brought in. Nick Vincent threw every day. It felt like last season, but Mm -hmm. as I look at this, the Mariners just signed Eric Goodell. They just claimed Dario Alvarez. Mark Zipchinski wasn't good. James Pazos is arguably reliable. Where is the the actual depth in this bullpen. I look at it, I don't think that it's bad, but I don't see this as a strength, especially given that, like, Nick Rumbelow is currently injured. Who's good? Who's the fifth guy in this group? Who's the sixth? Yeah, I mean, well, uh, it's always hard with relievers, right? I, I, uh, which is such a cheap answer. I have been encouraged by what I have seen from Dan Altavilla so far this spring yeah knowing that it's spring and all uh, i think that there's some some younger guys who people are excited about like art warren but they're not expected to be sort of up with the the major league club for a while but i think you're right that you know you can sort of squint and see how this would be a strength of the team i think um 
Edwin Diaz seems to have figured out some of his mechanical stuff, so we might see a nice return to form from him. I think, like you said, Nick Vincent is like, how lucky are the Mariners that the Padres just decided to kind of give away Nick Vincent on literally the last day of spring training <laughs> a couple as lucky years as ago? The Padres are that the Marlins gave away Brad Hand. <laughs> Everything is cyclical. Yeah, it's sort of shocking. Like, I can't imagine where that bullpen would be without him. If guys get hurt, if folks underperform, you know, there's definitely risk here, but I think there is upside but it it requires mariners pitchers to stay healthy so who the hell knows you know mm-hmm. speaking of pitchers who are trying to stay healthy felix has had some issues looks like he might be ready or in line for an opening day start although he is no longer the type of pitcher who gets opening day starts except for his past and his reputation and what he's meant for the franchise and a year ago, we were all writing Felix comeback stories or can Felix come back or what would that even look like? And he was in better shape and he had dedicated himself to this and that. I think both Jeff and I wrote some variation of that story. And as it turned out, he gave the Mariners neither quality nor quantity. He didn't pitch a whole lot. And when he did, he wasn't good. Was there any positive or hope? It's just he's so young still. He's not even 32 yet. He turns 32 early next month. And man, I mean, so many pitchers that age have so much ahead of them. And he just seems to be running out of rope. I think that Mariners fans remember how many miles are on Felix's arm. But I think a lot of like casual observers of that franchise don't remember just how many innings he's pitched. Mm -hmm. Because most of those innings that he's pitched happened when like, I don't know, when we were being forced to watch the 2010 Mariners. So, you know, he is young, but he's thrown, he's thrown a lot. I'm trying not to have expectations when it comes to Felix this year, just as a form of self-care. The injury he sustained in spring training doesn't seem like it was very serious. They really uh, dodged a bullet, though he did not dodge the ball. It was a sort of comebacker that hit him. And when he had a little minor league start, he looked, he looked real good. He, you know, the breaking stuff was working. He like quick pitched a guy, which was fun and weird. But I think that barring something dramatic that I'm not expecting, I think that the best that he can hope for is sort of something around his projection that we have for him right now, sort of two to two and a half wins and maybe more than, I don't know, like somewhere in the neighborhood of like 150 innings. And and we start to accept that he might be really, really in the decline phase of his career. And they have someone else at the top of the rotation who many people on this podcast like a lot, but I I can understand how uh, Felix might be. I imagine this will be his last opening day start, let's put it that way, which is sad. Well, yeah, he doesn't necessarily deserve it. So who's to say he won't get another one down the road? Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of formerly effective Mariners starting pitchers who seem to be on the downslope of their careers. Very quietly, the Mariners did sort of bring back Hisashi Iwakuma. He's yeah. around. He uh, he was not good last year. It turns out it's because he had a shoulder problem. That's why he was throwing 14 miles per hour and didn't strike anybody out. <laughs> Threw, made six starts. They were forgettable and bad, but he's back. He's not going to be ready for the start of the season. I think he's looking at somewhere in June, but... You know, he was a, he's 36 years old. It's a minor league contract, no guarantees here. But to what extent is there hope that Iwakuma can actually bounce back, turn the clock back even two seasons? Because, you know, you, you plug Iwakuma into that group and you can actually see it like a real starting five or starting four, depending on your Felix opinion. You know, I don't think that we know anything yet. I mean, he's not even, 
I think he maybe just threw his first bullpen. And by bullpen, I mean like he threw like 10 pitches a couple of days ago. So like you said, he's a pretty far way off. But Service has sounded like he's pretty encouraged by the progress that he's seen. And I don't know if he's healthy and can throw harder than 14 miles an hour. Is he really worse than Ariel Miranda, who I think led the majors in home runs allowed last year? I mean, he's going to be a back-end guy no matter what. And so I, I think, you know, I don't know. It, w- it was a good flyer to take because if he's healthy, I think that he's probably a lot, not a lot better than what we saw last year, but at least rosterable. And I think we'll know a lot more about sort of what that looks like in the next couple of weeks as he starts to get into, uh, you know, a throwing throwing regimen. But uh, I don't know. It was a minor league deal. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? (laughs) The one transaction that Jerry DePoto cannot make is re-signing himself. At least I assume that's the case. I wouldn't totally put it past him. But he is entering a contract year is his status safe? Do Mariners fans like the work he's done? It has certainly been active. It has been entertaining. He's given us a lot to talk about at times when no one else was doing something. So that is much appreciated, but it hasn't resulted in the playoff appearance, which is what everyone is ultimately evaluating him based on. So If it doesn't look like this is going to be the year that that streak ends, does he have enough cachet to get another deal? I've been thinking about this a lot. I mean, I don't think that ownership is sort of in the dark about the situation that Jerry came into. So it isn't like he came into a a front office for a team that was right on the cusp of contention and was just a couple of good pieces away from being a World Series winner. So I, I think that they know that, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of restocking the farm system. There was a lot of work to be done on the player development side. And I think that a lot of the moves he's made, even the ones that haven't worked out, for the most part have been interesting. I mean, we look at moves like, I don't know, ditching Chris Taylor for nothing. I don't know that we can hold Jerry responsible for not anticipating what Chris Taylor was going to become, right? I mean, no one thought that that was going to happen. So I don't get the sense that they're keen to move on, but I also think that if the Mariners don't make the postseason this year, I mean, it'll like the the Mariners postseason drought can drive. It can drive with other (laughs) teenagers in the car and not get pulled over. I mean, at a certain point, regardless of whether or not it's your fault, I think that fan bases and ownership are in a position where they're going to look for excuses to account for the fact that they haven't gotten where they wanted to go. And so I don't think that he's in a tremendous amount of jeopardy, but I would be, I'd be a little nervous if I were him. I mean, uh, they came in saying they were going to make the postseason. They haven't done that. They came in saying that they were going to produce a, a farm system that would rival, you know, some of the top orgs in baseball. And that hasn't happened yet. It, it may eventually, but hasn't yet. And, you know, there are a couple of moves in his tenure that look like they were sort of obviously bad with the benefit of hindsight. And so I think he's He's not 100% in jeopardy, but he isn't 100% safe either. And the fact that they haven't already extended him probably says something about sort of where they see him uh, positioned going forward. So maybe the big move that the Mariners made, definitely the big move that the Mariners made over the offseason was bringing in a second baseman to play center field. That's going to be D. Gordon. And his his transition seems to be going fairly smoothly. But of course, we haven't seen him in real games. We don't have a full season of him. And, and I guess sort of in short, do you think that the Mariners getting D. Gordon without telling him that they're going to trade change his position until they actually got him. Do you think that that is a 
a very clever progressive move or sort of a, a too clever by half sort of move? So I, I liked that move a lot at the time and not just, I liked the D Gordon of that move, not the international uh, signing bonus money of that move, which was, you know, a motivation for them when they made that trade too, because they were still trying to get Otani. I think, I mean, like you said, we'll see when he gets into actual game action, but so far he's looked really good. I think that they uh, rightly assessed that he had the speed for the position and that he could hopefully figure the rest out. And I like the insurance it gives them down the road because at some point Robinson Cano is not going to be able to play second base anymore and might have to contemplate a move to to first. And they're never getting out of that contract ever. Like they're going to be paying his children money. So, you know, it gives them some insurance down the road for when Robbie needs to to sort of shuffle down the defensive spectrum. So I don't know. I don't I don't think it was too clever by half. I think it was a it was a cool way to address a thing that they didn't think that they could get in the free agent market given the budget that they had. And so far it's turning out all right. I mean, I'm sure he'll have a couple of moments where we'll cringe and and regret the route that he's taken, but um so far it hasn't it hasn't been a problem. I've been impressed with his arm in center, which I was sort of, you know, skeptical of when they uh when they first made the move, but he's proved to be competent so far uh in that regard. So I liked it. And Mitch Henniger question. Mitch Henniger was great at the start of the season. Then he missed a bunch of the middle of the season. Then he came back from his oblique injury and was really good again. So is he, do you think, just the guy he was in the parts of the season when he was actually healthy? I mean, there was a time when he came back immediately after he returned from the injury where he did struggle for a while, but maybe that was injury or rust-related. So I don't know. Do you think he's the guy he was at the end of the season and at the beginning of the season, or is the overall season line roughly what he is if he stays healthy? I think we can attribute a lot of that sort of rough patch to Rust because the the approach was and don't forget he he got hit in the face too. <laughs> like poor Mitch had this like terrible year in terms of things that happened to him. I like Mitch Haniger. I think the approach is really solid. You know, he he walks a fair amount, he doesn't strike out he strikes out some, but not like a crazy amount. And he the one thing that does concern me a little bit with him is he he ran a sort of high BABIP compared to what we've seen from him in his prior major league stint, but that was 34 games with the Diamondbacks. So I, I don't know if we know what his sort of standard BABIP looks like. So I think he'll I think he'll be all right. I think Mitchell be fine. I think that of all the of all the players in the Mariners outfield, he's probably not the one that they have to worry about so much. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you knew this was coming. What's the the win total for the Mariners in 2018? I'm putting them at this is a little under their projected win total. I'm putting them at 79. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel great about it. I mean, in terms of either my confidence or how it makes me feel as a human being, but <laughs> I think that pitching staff is going to have a real rough time. And if any of them get hurt for any extended period of time, it's going to be rough. And I say that as someone who hopes that Andrew Moore has a long and successful career, but thinks that he would benefit from not seeing major league time this year. So mm. 79. And if they do end up somewhere in that range, how many years would you guess, knowing what we know now, that it would be before they exceed that total. In other words, yeah. Yeah, is that like as good as it's going it's, to be for a while? Or I don't think that we talk enough about how long this rebuild might take. <laughs> like it's 
It's a tiger's length rebuild at the very least. They're not getting out from under any of the big contracts that they have. They have continued to sign guys with like five-year deals and no trade clauses, which is understandable but weird. And when you look at what they have in terms of talent at the major league level, it runs out pretty quickly. So I think that it would be really great if the Mariners could make the postseason because I think they're going to sit on the outside for a while until they can actually develop some talent in-house. Yeah, I mean, there are teams that have looked at their rosters and maybe were even better set up for the future than the Mariners currently are and decided to tear down and rebuild. So if the Mariners haven't done that yet, and I guess I applaud and support their efforts to try to get there, and it's been fun to watch DePoto just entirely remake the roster in an attempt to do that. And I don't know if you could say that he's really made the rebuild longer or worse by doing that. Maybe. I don't know. But I guess it was worth a shot. And knowing how long it will likely take, as you were just saying, it's as a fan, I would imagine that it's, you know, a very mixed feelings situation because you want to kind of get going, but you also want to avoid that as long as you possibly can. Yeah, I don't think that any when when I talk to other Mariners fans, I think that at least in the, at this moment, uh, when they are directing dissatisfaction, they tend to be sort of looking ownership's way because mm-hmm. I think there is an annoyance that they have not, especially this year, spent money. Which, you know, I think there are, there are some really good reasons that they haven't done that in terms of the free agents that were available to them and what they would have had to spend. And it's not as if they're the Mariners teams of old that were running really, really low payrolls. I mean, I think I haven't looked lately, but I think they're still up in like the $150 million range. So it isn't as bad as it used to be, but I, I appreciate that frustration. It's like if you're going to hold on and, and keep trying to make the postseason and sort of delaying this inevitable bit of misery that you're going to inflict on your fans for a while, it seems like they're sort of half in, half out on doing that when they're not spending money. So I think it's mostly been, hey, ownership, write a check rather than, hey, Jerry, quit it. So <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, I apologize for not asking any Kyle Seeger questions, but he, he had a pretty bland season. So what can I say? Yeah. 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 All right. Well, you can find Meg at Fangraphs. You can find her at and running the hardball times. You can find her punning and lamenting the Mariners on Twitter at Meg Rowler. Always a joy. Thank you, Meg. Thank you. All right. So we will take a quick break and we'll be right back with Jesse Spector to talk about the Colorado Rockies. Dark-eyed country girl, tears in her eyes Needs the music of the wind in the pines As we get ever closer to wrapping up our season preview series, and it feels like the season is probably already over, over the course of our doing this, but... We still haven't talked about the Rockies, and we're going to do that now. And we are joined by Jesse Spector, who is the East Coast Bias columnist for Rockies Magazine. Jesse, hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, and, and that's the first time that I've been introduced as such, so thank you. <laughs> it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> the The Rockies, of course, made the playoffs last year. They were, a, they were a fun story. They were projected to be all right, but they made it into the, the wild card game, and they had a, a young, sort of up-and-coming team, and... They uh, they looked really promising, and then they followed that. They had a fairly active offseason. Of course, the the big move they made was signing Wade Davis, but all the money they spent on the bullpen, did the Rockies get any better this winter? Well, that's a good question. I think that simply by virtue of aging, 
uh, with with the rotation that they have, I think that they got better. I mean, you look at you know John Gray and Kyle Freeland, and Jeff Hoffman, Antonio Sanzatella. They they got a real young group there, and you know those guys all have that extra year of experience under their belt and pitching in in a playoff race, uh, a, you know, a division race for part of the season, and and then you know very certainly a, a wild card race. And you know John Gray got knocked around in the wild card game, but I think that that's one of those where you can grow from it. The lineup was the big thing that they really kind of needed to address. They did not address that. I mean, they they were an above average team last year pitching. And they made the investment in the bullpen. And I think that makes sense for them because you play at course for one thing and you want to have a strong bullpen that, you know, you're not having pitchers go, your starters go three times through the order. And you want to have it so that those guys don't have to go six, seven innings. And you can turn it over to Brian Shaw, Mike Dunn, Wade Davis and, and get out of there. And you still have Jake McGee and Ottavino's there. And it's a good bullpen. I think that they did need to do a little bit more to address the lineup. Bring Carlos Gonzalez back was a late move, but a good one. I think that, you know, he had a, an awful, awful year last year, but he's somebody who's been important to the franchise for a long time, is somebody that everybody on the team just absolutely loves. And I think that you can expect better from an Ian Desmond. And, and then you have, you know, some of the younger guys who are who are also coming in that way. David Dahl's going to be part of the mix at some point in the outfield. Uh, Rymel Tapia, same thing. And... I'm not sure exactly what to make of Trevor Story, but you know Ryan McMahon seems like he's played his way into first base uh, at, during spring training. At least that is what I think the the Rockies fan base would like to see is Ryan McMahon really get a shot at first base, and and he it seems like he deserves it. What you do then, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure that they're necessarily better on paper, but because they they didn't do all that much to upgrade their area of weakness, but I think that. You know, they're a team that was on the upswing anyway, and you can kind of look at last year's being a little bit, you know, I, I want to say like Yankees light, you know, that they were kind of a year ahead of where they were supposed to be. And then, you know, they made some upgrades to areas where maybe you didn't think that they needed to. You know, and in a similar way, like Wade Davis joins the Rockies in their bullpen, an area that they didn't necessarily need to get that much better. And although Greg Holland obviously did leave as a free agent, so Rockies really love those ex-Royals closers, I guess. Uh, that's not quite bringing in Giancarlo Stanton. But yeah, if it, if you're going to think of it as Yankees light, then yeah, go ahead. I don't have that many specific memories of our Rockies previews from previous springs, except one David Roth did because he just relentlessly mocked management and ownership the entire time, which I guess is harder to do now. But Probably, I'm guessing, that all of those previews were pretty Coors Field focused. Everyone always loves to talk about Coors Field, and that has historically seemed like something that has held the Rockies back. So for years, people proposed, well, maybe you just get a ground ball staff and you keep the ball in the park that way. Maybe you get a fastball-oriented staff, and that way the pitch movement won't be affected by Coors Field the way that certain breaking balls are. Well, the Rockies did both of those things, it seems at least somewhat intentionally. They led the majors in ground ball rate last year. They led the majors in four-seam fastball rate last year. And perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, they actually had an above-average starting rotation and a better-than-above-average bullpen. So do we declare Coors Field solved now? Do we say that it's not holding the Rockies back anymore, that they've figured out the formula, or is it too soon to say so? I think that they've they've at least gotten to a point where they can play it as, this is just a hitter's park. 
mm-hmm. and and that's kind of the way that it is. And yeah, I kind of thought that they were going to have more strikeouts as as part of the mix, at least as far as you know the pitchers that they have on the staff. And that was sort of how I went into last year, looking at oh these guys can strike some people out, and it didn't entirely work that way. But yeah, you know fastballs, grounders, uh, that seems like it's the smart formula. What's what's funny is again like. They were a below-average hitting team and an above-average pitching team, which is not what you would have ever expected from the Rockies at really any point in their history. But this is what got them to the playoffs last year. And the trick is doing it again. And I think that the other important part of it isn't just the strikeouts and grounders. It is managing the workload mm-hmm. and and making sure that I think, and this is just my own personal theory and feeling on it, is that as pitchers work deeper into games, there that that trouble that you see and that has been sort of accentuated throughout Major League Baseball, you know, where where starters are working shorter and shorter, and you're getting to the bullpen more and more often. I think that that's something, and it's it's not a matter of you know those times that they experimented with a four man rotation or a six man rotation through the years. They can go with five, and they can go with you know, all right, just give us five innings. If you can get into the sixth, great, but hold them to two or three runs and we've got guys in the bullpen that can come in and those guys those are the strikeout guys you know a Wade Davis does strike people out and Brian Shaw can can strike people out too and you know that's that's what you're looking for out of that and i think that to say solved no it's never going to be solved it's never going to be solved in the same way that you know so many other parks are, are never going to be solved it's just something that you live with it's just a matter of demystifying it and i think that because you have so many homegrown guys in the pitching staff now, I think that that's a big part of it is that it's just, this is what they're used to. And I think that there's a smart thing that, that they did when they switched their AAA affiliation to Albuquerque. I think that that was a, a good move on the Rockies part to get guys used to pitching at some kind of elevation. I don't know what the exact elevation is in Albuquerque, but it's, you know, it's up. And you certainly want to be in the Pacific Coast League because it's a hitter's league and that'll help guys get ready for that kind of environment. And I think that that's, uh, they've, they've played it smart, at least in that regard over time in a way that, yeah, there, this has been a, a mockable organization. When I was at Sporting News, I, I did a thing of, you know, Simpsons screen caps for each team, uh, the year that Frankie Ack came out, uh, <laughs> whatever year that was. And, and the one that I had for the Rockies was, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. The, the <laughs> Flanders parents as hippies. You know, and that was kind of how it was. And they have tried now. They've tried to put together something with fastballs and grounders and, and trying to make that happen and work. And to some extent, it has. And good for them for that. So Ian Desmond, of course, was signed to a massive contract, five years, $70 million. There's an option here, apparently. Doubt it's picked up. But Desmond is coming off a miserable season. Not the first time that's happened to him. He was miserable in 2015. Bounced right back. So when I look at the Roxy's roster right now, obviously Nolan Arenado is the most important player. Maybe Charlie Blackman, mm-hmm. maybe John Gray. I don't know. Those those are the clear best players there for most important. But when I look at Desmond, he has the potential to cover at first base, shortstop, left field, center field, maybe even right field. I don't know. Seems like he could protect the Rockies in a lot of different ways if he works out. So what is the hope for Ian Desmond right now? Obviously, he has bounced back before, but what is what happened and how can he get better? Oh boy, what what happened? I think was yeah, he wasn't physically right. I think for most of last year, and I think that was that was part of it. He only played ninety five games and got three hundred seventy three plate appearances, but 
when he did play, you know, wasn't good. And, and you know, as mystifying as Carlos Gonzalez was, they're the same age. You know, that's uh, these are these are not guys that are should be over the hill at this point in their careers. They're both you know entering their age thirty two seasons, and they were both just dreadful last year. So I think that you know what you have to do to get them fixed, and it certainly hasn't looked like Desmond has been fixed in any way, shape, or form in spring training. Is give them some run, you know, let them play, let them you know try to be healthy. I think that's an important thing. And Desmond has had to deal with some physical stuff in, in spring training as well. So you know that's off to a a tough start that way, but I think that, you know, as far as Desmond goes, I think that you do want to have some stability with him. And as far as position, I don't think that moving him around does him a whole lot of favors. Cause you remember, this is a guy who was a, a full-time shortstop just a couple of years ago, and then he becomes an outfielder and then you're sticking him at first base. And I think that can mess with a guy. And if you're not handling it in the right way, and it was a weird free agency for him, it it seemed like an odd fit, but you know he was playing at first base sometimes last year and playing the out. You know, like you said, all those positions that he played last year, he played in you know four different positions last year. He'd never played more than three before, and that was you know back to his first stint with the Nationals at twenty one games in 09 when he played you know mostly shortstop and a little bit of second and a little bit of right field, and then he was pretty much a shortstop entirely until he was just an outfielder with the Rangers, and then. You know, he's outfield, first base, center field, and uh, left field shortstop, too, for a little bit. I think that that can have an effect on guys. And, and I think that that's something that we don't always necessarily think about as something that you bring with you to the plate. But also, that does not explain you know, a 75-point drop in slugging percentage. <laughs> that's that's not something that just ordinarily happens. So there are some questions there. I, I don't know if it's going back to different league uh, you know, after one year in the American League where he really did hit well with the Rangers and he hadn't hit well with the Nationals the year before. Maybe he's just one of those players that's, you know, the one that I always think about, and it's not a good comparison to Ian Desmond at all because he's a you know, a pitcher, but Brett Saberhagen was like always Cy Young candidate in an odd number year and then just garbage in an even numbered year. Now, the the anti-San Francisco Giants of his day, but maybe that's what Ian Desmond is. I don't know. We talked about the rotation, and it was fairly strong as a unit, certainly by Rocky's standards. Gray was great, especially late in the season. Behind Gray, though, there was a bunch of average-ish, or maybe a bit below average-ish. I think other than Herman Marquez, I think everyone had, I don't know, depends what stat you look at, but say park-adjusted FIP for one, they were all at least a little bit below average. Not great strikeout guys, just as a rotation. Didn't miss a lot of bats, and certainly besides Gray, they didn't. They lost Chatwood, of course, this offseason, too. Is there anyone behind Gray, you know, whether it's Bettis, Anderson, Marquez, Freeland, can any of these guys be better than just sort of mid or back of the rotation filler? Not that having an actual rotation filled with filler would be bad, given the Rockies staffs historically and Gray at the front. Yeah, I mean, filler, <laughs> filler would be something yeah. uh, for, for them. <laughs> right. uh, but yeah, I mean, like you, you look at it and it really is about who can... Who can just give them five or six and get it to, you know, there are the, the high strikeout guys are on the bullpen because you got Davis and McGee and Ottavino and Dunn and those, those are all strike. Scott Oberg strikes out, you know, almost a batter in inning too. I think that there is, there's a lot there, I think, with, with Sensatella. Uh, he's, he's a guy that I think there's something to unearth there. 
And you know, if if he can start using his stuff to strike out more guys, and if Kyle Freeland can maybe cut down on the walks a little bit, I think that he's never going to – I don't think Freeland's going to be a big strikeout guy, but he can pitch the contact effectively enough. And if he can avoid the walks and, and pitch to a little bit more contact and you know get those ground balls, I think that he can be effective that way and, and turn into something. And I wouldn't forget about Jeff Hoffman either. I think that he's got to get himself physically straightened out and and make himself you know a, a real contender that way. But he's deal, he's dealt with a shoulder this spring, so that's never a promising thing. I think that what you're hoping, if you're the Rockies, is that behind Gray and you know Marquez is certainly you know a, a guy who can do it too. Marquez is only you know going into his 23 season, uh, and he's got a good strikeout rate and, and keeps the ball in the park. Not as well as you would necessarily like, but you know that's something that you can always work on too. I think that what you're looking at is can one or two out of those four, five, six guys make a leap to a next level where they are sort of a, a two-ish, three-ish, you know that that kind of pitcher around the league. And these are all guys who are you know in their early twenties still, and I think that's that's an important thing to keep in mind. They have not reached their physical peak yet as pitchers, so there's there's room for growth. But I don't know that there's one that you can necessarily peg it to because there's there's nothing that jumps out at you that says, oh, this is going to be the guy that does it and stands aside John Gray as as the you know the, the clear number two on this staff. Right. So you think it'll be somebody, but you just don't know who. So with Wade Davis and Jake McGee signed, Brian Shaw signed, clearly the Rockies put a lot of emphasis on their bullpen for maybe reasons that we just discussed. But the most interesting and maybe most important reliever to me in the Rockies group has been with the Rockies for a while. That's Adam Onovino. And I'm just going to uh, do a little thing. I'm going to read some Adam Onovino sequential walk rates here, just starting in 2014. Uh, okay, 6%, 6%, 6%, 16%. So <laughs> Adam Onovino last year walked 39 batters. That's more than he walked the previous three seasons combined. I know he missed time, but anyway... Onovino, when he's been right, has been absolutely dominant. He's been crucial for the Rockies' success. Obviously, based on last season, the Rockies can make the playoffs without an effective version of Adam Onovino. But if he's if he's right, if he's healthy and throwing the pitches he wants, the Rockies have the makings of like a, a really dominant bullpen. So, same question, I guess, as for anyone else: What happened, and what's the hope moving forward? How does he How does he look? Is he healthy now? I have. No idea what happened. <laughs> it's just, like, how do you explain that? Like, what what is it? And it's it's just what like, yeah. Uh, and he was if if you want to play the six game, six point six walks per nine innings. So that's something. <laughs> I I don't know. I I didn't know what to make of that then, and I haven't figured it out at all now. Um, but you know, in in the spring, he's looked kind of similar four walks in seven and a third innings uh, at, at the point that we're talking now, but you know, only six hits. And, and so that's, that's something he's still striking guys out. So it's not like the stuff has evaporated on him. He's just, he's, you know, and I don't know what this, what the circumstances of those four walks were. I haven't watched none of them. I can tell you from looking at the stat sheet, none of them were intentional. So there's that. But as far as what went wrong and how, or if it's going to be fixed, yeah, uh, it's that's that's a big if, but it's with the moves that they made, it is a less important if because they do have so much depth in the bullpen. It's it's, it's one of those where it's like, well, if this works out, great. If it doesn't, well, we're still pretty well covered. And I think that's that's kind of the game that you play with with relievers anyway, a little bit further down the depth chart, and and it's been that way for years. And how many times have we seen 
just teams all over that have relievers that kind of come out of nowhere and, and emerge as dominant forces, especially in, in the sixth, seventh inning kind of role. That's what you want to see. Ottavino can be that. He's got to get the walks under control. You would think that he'll figure it out. But if he's if he's also not letting guys get hits, that's uh, that's okay. It's not the worst thing in the world. But they've they've got cover there. So I think that it's one of those where it's like, if this works, great. If it doesn't, well, we can live with it. I don't know the answer to this question, which, well, I guess that's why I'm asking. But <laughs> I am not in the local market, obviously. I'm not reading the daily Rockies coverage necessarily. How much credit did Bud Black get for their turnaround last year and how much should he get? Because often you see if a manager or even a coach happens to come along at the right time when the team is just gelling and a bunch of young guys come up, it will be largely credited to that new manager, especially if it's someone who has success in the past and a record and a reputation like Bud Black. But is there something to that? Was there something about the transition to Black that helped the Rockies take the leap that they did? Uh, I don't know that there's a specific thing that you can point to there. I think that he got, I, I would say, an appropriate amount of credit. I think that you know a good amount of credit went to the players who, mm-hmm. who did the playing on the field. And, and you looked and you saw, oh, here's this influx of young pitching. Now you have a manager in Bud Black who is known, you know, and has a reputation for being able to, you know, he obviously was a pitcher and had success working with pitchers and was well known as, as a, uh, he was a pitching coach before mm-hmm. becoming a manager. So, you know, that's something that's been in his toolbox for, you know, his entire baseball life is expertise as far as pitching is concerned. So I think that, you know, the ability to work with young pitchers would, would the Rockies have had the success with a young rotation had they got stuck with Walt Weiss or had they gone in a different direction with another manager? I'm not sure, but I think that it wasn't all heaped on Bud Black the way that, say, it was you know when Matt Williams took over in Washington and was manager of the year that first year, and everybody's like, oh, what a great job Matt Williams did. He got, a, he got them out of this mess, and then the next year he was the dumbest man on earth. <laughs> like, that's not going to happen with Bud Black. I think that he's... You know, obviously he has 10 years of managerial experience in, in the majors now, for one thing. But also, you know, he's he's a steady force as as a manager and, and a stable kind of presence. And I think, you know, got the got the appropriate amount of credit that a manager should get, I would say, just generally. I think he's well-liked among, you know, the Rockies fan base. There's always going to be questions about the lineup on any given day, and certainly in spring training, roster decisions that aren't entirely in the manager's hands anyway. But I think that, yeah, he's he's looked at as a good manager, which is something that the Rockies have not always had during their time, and I think that that's something that they are they are cognizant of because they've had, they've brought in some good men. I mean, you, you always think of Jim Leland and the disaster that, that was there. Uh, so, so that's something, but I think that it was, and, and this is not, a, not to knock Walt Weiss, who's, you know, a, a good baseball guy, but I think they did need a change of voice after four years of just kind of muddling through and, and doing what they were doing and, you know, having a couple of the worst years in, in franchise history, 96 losses, 94 losses. And they did show improvement in 2016. Uh, and started to move in the right direction. And sometimes that's the point where a, a change, just a change of voice, and you see this in, in other sports too, sometimes that change of voice is, is just the spark that you need, and then then you're kind of good to go. And I think that's that's something like the Yankees are hoping for this year. You know, I'm going, like, 
What did Joe Girardi got them to Game Seven of the ALCS last year? Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, you know, that's all right, and and certainly that's that's a good performance. But you know, we're going to make a move because it's it's time for a fresh voice and a fresh fresh approach to this. And I think that's part of what Bud Black brought to the table for the Rockies that wound up being, you know, when when you do that, you you are taking a chance that you're going to wind up with somebody who's bringing the wrong voice and the wrong approach. And I think the Bud Black had the right voice and the right approach for this group. So credit to them for hiring the right guy, even though, you know, it wasn't the hardest choice when, when he was, I think, viewed as the top manager out of work at the time. So we have a old podcast standby, TOPS Plus. I'm not going to explain it, but whatever. Uh, TOPS Plus, looking at the, I was looking at the the Rockies' Road hitting numbers, and so last season, the Rockies' T-O-P-S plus on the road was 80. That means they were worse than they were at home. And this has stayed pretty much the same. Of course, it's bounced around year to year, but over the course of their franchise history, certainly over the last 5, 10, 15 years, their road hitting numbers have been roughly the same relative to their, their home hitting numbers. And I think we all understand why, or at least we think we understand why the Rockies perform worse offensively on the road. It only makes sense. Not only are they not at elevation, but they're just seeing pitches move differently. But you would assume that the organization would be working on trying to mitigate the extremity of the change when they play away from Coors. So based on the recent record, I don't think that you you can conclude much progress has been made. But do you know of anything the Rockies have been trying to do to make it easier on their hitters when they go somewhere else? Is there anything they can do? I don't know that there is anything that they can do. I think that maybe you're looking at taking a different approach. And, you know, the, I, I think that you, 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 they've tried sort of different approach. But the one thing that they haven't really tried yet is build a, a, a team full of Billy Hamiltons. And I think that, that would be a fun thing to watch the Rockies do and just like hit triples everywhere, don't care about home runs, steal a ton of bases, you know, take, take advantage of Corzin that way at home and, and use speed. To your advantage they haven't really ever done that they've they've gone with sort of the balanced offense approach for for most of the time and you know you, you can also go back and look at the early days of the Blake Street Bombers I don't know that there's that there's a real solution there because like you said you are looking at pitches coming in different ways so it's not just about the ballpark but it's about the the overall hitting experience and I don't know that there is you know it's not like they're not trying. It's not like they're not taking BP on the road and, and they're they're just messing around out there. I, I think that that is, as much as it's difficult to solve cores as a pitching staff, it might be harder to solve the cores problem as as a lineup. And I don't, you know, we're 25 years in now and there hasn't been an answer to it. And they've had a lot of different kinds of lineups and we've seen this for a quarter century that they are, you know, a good hitting team at home and a garbage hitting team on the road. I don't know that you have to accept that that's the way it is. And I don't know that anybody in, in 2018 or beyond is going to try to build the 1985 Cardinals. I'd be very entertained if they did, but I don't really see it happening. So I, I think that that's, you just kind of take what you're going to take. And, you know, again, you're trying to bring up guys through your system who you've sort of familiarized through the minor league system of playing at some kind of altitude, at least in AAA. And, and you kind of go from there and hope that you find some dudes that, that can get it done. And, you know, ultimately they have had, you know, and, and I know that they get very little credit for it when they do, but they have had 10 batting champions. And I know that batting average is not the stat that we all care about, but, you know, those guys get hits and, 
do they come on the road? No, <laughs> but <laughs> but you you get so many at home. I think at some point, and that's that's where it also pays to have just quality pitching and kind of accept that you're going to be playing playing almost as two different teams. You're going to be playing in a high run environment at home and a low run environment on the road. And yeah, your team is going to be shifting in both of those directions. Your pitchers are going to be different on the road. The the pitching on the road is a totally weird conundrum as well because it's like oh now I'm away from course how do I you know, do I pitch differently do, I, do the pitches move differently it's it's such a it's such a weird thing that at some point you almost you kind of have to put it aside because it's like there's nothing you can do about it until you start playing it you know if if the next ballpark after cores is is on the table for them at some point you know I I don't think there's any movement towards that nor should there be it's a great park and you know we're not dealing with the with a Texas or Atlanta situation here. And I don't think the Denver taxpayers would really be up for getting bilked in that kind of fashion. But the next time they do build a park, maybe they can get some research from Syracuse and, and what they did at the carrier dome and build a, a pressurized building that sort of normalizes the environment until that happens. I have no idea how any of that gets solved. Yeah. Well, one more question along those lines about Nolan Arnato, who I think we all agree that he's great, but, Maybe yeah. not everyone agrees on the degree of greatness, whether he's great, great or merely good, great. It seems like a somewhat divisive subject in some circles because I think Rockies fans watch him every day. And not only is he great and fun and personable and just he's just a joy to watch, too. So I think when you watch him every day, you get the impression no one could possibly be better than this guy. And I understand that. And maybe if you don't watch him every day, you start citing the usual numbers and the home road splits and his career TOPS plus is 82. So right in line with all the rest of the Rockies. And, you know, you look at the 790 OPS on the road and well, how much do we dock him? And he has a, you know, good stats at cores, but once you park adjust them, he's kind of in the range of a very good hitter, not a league leading great hitter. So two questions about him. How should we appraise him? Is he really one of the, you know, very tip-top best players in baseball, top five, whatever you want to say, whatever you would conclude based on his surface stats, essentially? Or is it fair to dock him somewhat? And once we dock him, how far does he fall? And secondly, he signed through 2019, but there has been some talk about an extension and the Rockies, whatever their other faults as a franchise, do have a history of re-signing and extending their franchise players. So do you expect any movement anytime soon on that front? Uh, I'll, I'll start with that and say I think that you know every indication that I've ever gotten is that he loves it there and you know, would would be perfectly happy to stay there for you know for a good long time and I think that's kind of you know a similar case with uh with Carlos Gonzalez and you know why he's back there now it's a nice place to be a nice place to play and yeah it's it's a fun ballpark to play in especially if you're a hitter so so there's always going to be that I think that as far as docking him for for where he plays like people are going to do that anyway so I don't know what the the fair approach is to it because it's one of those things where like he's always going to be knocked at least a little bit. I mean, would Todd Helton be a Hall of Famer if if he had done what he did? If you if you put Todd Helton in Minnesota, for instance, and just said, "Okay, here's Todd Helton and we've we've park adjusted his stats and here's Todd Helton's lifetime career in in Minnesota." Would he be a Hall of Famer? I 
I don't know. Yeah. Or Larry Walker is how, maybe a, yeah. an even better case who maybe gets docked for a course, even though once you dock him for a course, he still kind of looks like a Hall of Famer. Yeah, and he was, and, and the thing with Larry Walker that's kind of annoying is that he was awesome everywhere, right? In other places mm-hmm. too. Like he was awesome with the Expos, but like guys get knocked for having been with the Expos. It feels like why I don't get that, and, and I have the affinity for the Expos too. So I'm really like in that boat. Like, why did it take Tim Rain so long to get in? Why did it take an extra year for like Vlad Guerrero should have been a first bat. Like if you saw Vlad Guerrero play and we all did, how would you ever think that that guy was anything but a first ballot hall of famer? So I don't know. Larry Walker, I feel very similar about like, he's one of the best guys I've ever seen play baseball and should be in the hall of fame. Where does Nolan Arenado fit? I think that he's in the conversation with Chris Bryant. And it's, it's one of those where, like you said, if you watch him every day, including what he does in the field, you come away with the impression that this guy's one of the, you know, maybe the best third baseman in baseball. Probably the best. If if you see him every day, you think that he is the best third baseman in baseball. Especially if Manny Machado is a shortstop, I guess. <laughs> but yes. Yeah. No, but I think that Machado, Bryant, Arenado, they're all, they're all the same in that regard. That, like, if you see this guy every day, you cannot believe that there is anybody better because yeah. you notice all of the little things that they do that aren't the, the stats. And they're all great baseball players and smart baseball players and i think that that's that's something that can't really be overlooked is that like no one now is a, a guy who doesn't make wrong plays you know and, and machado and bryant are the same way like that's that's what separates guys like that is that like they just don't make mistakes like they fail but they don't screw up and I think that that's, that's a demarcation point for me between who's just a real good player and who's among the best of the best. So I, I would still put Arenado in that group. All right, so we can wrap this up as we do all of these segments with a win total prediction. So give us your best estimate for a 2018 Rockies <sighs> win total. Let's see. They won 87 last year. I think that they're better, so... I'll say 91. Okay. All right. Well, you can read Jesse in Rockies Magazine if you are lucky enough to be in the uh, circulation area. I guess you can probably get it anywhere. But You can subscribe. Yeah, sure. I get it mailed to me. Yeah. And you can also read him and hear him all over the internet. He covers the Yankees. He covers the Devils. He covers multiple sports. He covers Twitter very thoroughly. Right now, he is covering <laughs> Rocky's Twitter very extensively, but he also tweets about other things at Jesse Spector. You can also hear him regularly on Friend of the Podcast, Stephen Goldman's Infinite Inning Podcast. So glad we could get you on. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for having me. Thank you much. That will do it for today and for this week. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. And five listeners who have warmed our hearts recently by pledging some small monthly amount to fund our efforts here include Jamie Herbst, Matthew, Aaron Roth, Larry Freed, and Ben Medeiros. Thank you very much to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes, which really does help us. So I'm told we podcasters all mindlessly repeat that. We mostly take it on faith, but I know I enjoy reading nice reviews. Thank you to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can, of course, continue to read Banish to the Pen's series of written team previews. They're going up at banishtothepen.com, the sister site of this podcast started by Effectively Wild listeners. They have previews up for all the teams that we've been previewing in podcast form. You can send us questions, comments, complaints. 
Don't get a lot of complaints, but you're welcome to send some. Don't even have to be about baseball or this podcast. Email them to us at podcast at fangraphs.com or send them to us via the Patreon site if you are a supporter and have access to the messaging system. Well, we have come to the precipice. There is one team preview podcast remaining. It will feature the Mets and the Rays. Once we finish, we'll all be fully prepared for the season, which, oh, by the way, starts next week. So have a wonderful weekend, and we will talk to you all very soon. I must keep it.